Well, I have something to share. I feel like I should say it, but I know that some of you will reluctantly acknowledge it as well. But it's also very hard to say out loud, but God is dead. I didn't want to admit it, but the evidence is mounting. Worshippers of God are starting to feel hopeless. They've put their trust in God, and now they're starting to feel sad and depressed because their happiness is in God, and they're starting to feel lost because their reason for living was in God, and they'd given all their time to God. Whatever you put your trust in is by definition your God. And when people put their trust in God, in money, excuse me, and make that their God, and they lose that money, to them it's like watching God die. Now I apologize to those of you who brought a guest today. I hope you whispered to them, I don't think he really believes God is dead. This can't be real. But it is real for those who put their trust in money. They've tried to find their hope, their security, their significance and identity in money. And when they lose that, it feels like God is dying. So that's why Jesus talked about money so much. He talked about money more than he did about heaven and hell combined. He even talked about it more than he talked about prayer. So money, more than anything else, can become God's chief competition We can find ourselves looking to money for the very thing that God meant for us to do, actually to do for us. And money becomes a God substitute, a functional savior for us. God said it very clearly through Jesus in Matthew 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. The person will hate one master and love the other or will follow one master and refuse to follow the other. You cannot serve both God and worldly riches. So you can't worship God and money. Like it's one or the other. Now what we're going to do today is look at 1 Kings chapter 17. And in there we're going to see a test unfold for the prophet Elijah as well as for a poor widow. And Elijah had predicted a drought in the land and that's exactly what had happened. And now there's a famine And he has explained to the people that the reason why God was withholding the rain is because the people have been worshiping a false god by the name of Baal. And Baal was the god of rain in that culture. And can you see what God is doing here? He's withholding his blessing of rain from the people because they're worshiping a false god of rain instead of him. And we shouldn't be surprised when it unfolds this way. Like sometimes people will pray for God to make them wealthy. Like doesn't God want me to be happy? Doesn't he want me to have a bigger house and a newer car? And since God's not in the habit of handing out idols, then he's he's not going to give you things that are going to become too important to you. So you shouldn't be surprised when money starts becoming too important to us that we start to see God kind of withdrawing his blessings in that area of our lives. Now, these people aren't very thrilled that Elijah's made a connection between their spiritual lives and the mess that they're in. And in fact, the authorities, they are so upset that they are trying to kill him. 
So we catch up to the story here in 1 Kings 17, verses 3 and 4. And we see God about to give Elijah some instructions about where he can go to be safe. So leave this place and go east and hide near Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan River. You may drink from the stream, and I have commanded ravens to bring you food there. Now we assume Elijah will say, Are you sure about this plan, God? You're sending me away from the Jordan River, which is our main source of water during this famine. And you're actually saying that you're going to provide food by the way of a raven? Are you sure this raven thing is the way to go? But look at verse 5. So Elijah did what the Lord said. He went to Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and lived there. So there were no questions from him. We just see Elijah showing his trusting obedience. There's some challenges in this for us. We need to trust God even when it doesn't make sense. And much of what the Bible says about money doesn't make sense. It's countercultural, and it might even be more than that. It's counterintuitive. It just doesn't feel right. So we're to trust God even when it doesn't make sense. But that's hard for us to do. Like the Bible says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And if I was to ask for a show of hands, all your hands would go up. Yes, it's more blessed to give than to receive. But let's say out in the cafe after the service, I say, look, there's somebody really in need in the church. I've got $1,000. You can just have this $1,000. Or that person that's in need, how about you take $1,000 of your money and you go help that person? Now, you'd probably say, well, couldn't there be a third option there? You give me the $1,000 and then I'll give that $1,000 to that person in need. But that's not one of the options. If you really believe that it's more blessed to give than to receive, you would say, look, I appreciate the offer of $1,000, but I need to do this myself. It would be better for me. I would enjoy it more if I could give $1,000 of my own money away. But do we really believe that? If the Bible talks about when we give, and says that God gives back to us in even more abundance in different ways. And we nod our heads in church and agree with that. But do we really believe it? That's why people come up to me and they say, this tithing thing, isn't that an Old Testament concept? Like We don't have to give a tenth of our income today as New Testament Christians, do we? In other words, they're saying, I want to get by with doing as little, giving as little as I can. Why? Because we don't really believe what the Bible says about giving and money. It just goes against what makes sense to us. Guys, let's imagine it's your wedding anniversary day, and you've had a really busy day at work, and then up pops your Google reminders, and there's a meeting at the church that night, Any meeting at the church trumps anything special that you would do with your wife. And so you go to the meeting and you think, okay, I've got to do something really special here. So you order this $100 arrangement of flowers. Even the vase alone is so cool that you think she'd be excited about that even if there were no flowers in it. 
But you're not just going to send a gift card this time. You're going to go out there. So you go to your meeting. You come home at 10 o'clock, and you're excited to see those flowers. And you walk in, and there's this pitiful little pink plastic vase and a couple of roses and daisies. And your wife goes, thank you for the flowers. And you go, what? That's not the ones I ordered. And then you immediately pull up a picture on your iPhone, and you show her what you ordered for her. You know, that might actually be a good strategy right across the board, guys. Like, give your wife something that she doesn't like. Well, that's not what I ordered. Like, but you're upset about this because it's not what you spent your money on. So when the Bible talks about trusting God in the area of finances, and it doesn't... I'm not getting any smiles at all from my wife because there wasn't really anything much... Actually... Yeah, I did something on our anniversary. <laughs> Certain times, you just have to look away from your family. And, and <laughs> oh, I could get really off track here. Back before, we had two services, and we had pews, and we had a smaller seating area. My oldest daughter, like she's in church every Sunday that she's not on shift, and she had to sit right in the front row, and I'm talking about the family, and I could see her looking at me. Dad, you're saying it, but we're not seeing this at home. And finally, I just had to ask her to move, and she knew what I meant. She got up and went right to the back and squeezed in with somebody else. Oh, I'm off track here now. Okay, so Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. The Bible says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. So that's your own human resources. Seek his will in all you do, so that's even in your financial matters, and he will show you which path to take. So it doesn't really make a lot of sense that, but Elijah trusts God, he obeys, and God supplies. So we read in verse 7, after a while, the stream dried up because there was no rain. So God sent Elijah to the brook. Elijah obeyed God and went to the brook, and now the brook dries up. Maybe you're standing in a dry brook right now. You feel like you've been obedient to God, like you've tried to do things His way, you've tried to honor Him with your life, and it just seems like the brook is going dry. You don't have enough to pay for your rent or your mortgage on time or your power bill, or maybe you're watching some of your investments dry up, and you're standing next to the brook and saying, God, I hope you notice that the water level is dropping here. When you're standing next to the brook waiting for God to do something, that's when you find out if you really trust or not. The challenge for us is to trust God even when the future is uncertain. Have you ever gone to a circus and watched trapeze artists? Like the, the person who lets go of the bar is referred to as the flyer. And then the other person, usually a stronger man, is referred to as the catcher. And when that flyer lets go of the bar, the important thing for them to remember is just to reach out their hands but not try to grab the catcher. They just have to stick their hands out there, hold them, and, and trust. And that's hard to do. 
They have to put their hands out there and be still with confidence that the strong arms of the catcher will catch them. So this is where some of you find yourselves. The brook has run dry. You just feel like you're flying through the air and everything in you just wants to grab at something. It wants to catch the catcher, to hit the panic button. And God says, just reach out your hands and trust the catcher. That's where you find whether or not your trust is real. So God gives Elijah further instructions on what to do because there's no water left. And it gets even more unusual here in verse 9. Go to the town of Zarephath in Sidon and live there. I've told a widow in that town to give you food. So now he sends Elijah into enemy territory where there's going to be a widow who will provide him with food and water. And not just any widow, a Gentile widow. So once again, this doesn't seem like a good plan that God has going on here. And maybe Elijah's thinking, you know, the ravens made a little more sense. But here's what we read in verse 10. So Elijah went to Zarephath. When he reached the town gate, he saw a widow gathering food for a fire. And Elijah asked her, Would you bring me a little water in a cup so I may have a drink? Now, this is no small request. Remember, there's a famine in the land. And as she was going to get his water, Elijah said, Please bring me a piece of bread too. Now, she's got nothing left. And she explains, As surely as the Lord your God lives, I have no bread. I have only a handful of flour in a jar and only a little of olive oil in a jug. I came here to gather some food so I could go home and cook our last meal. My son and I will eat it and then die from hunger. So don't you think that kind of puts things into perspective? Have you ever known poverty like that? Like most of us haven't. You could live off social assistance and a food bank and you're going to be better off than most people in the world. If you make 32, these are the recent figures, if you make 32,400, hundred dollars a year, you are making more than 99% of the people in this world. So you're part of the top 1% of the richest people on the earth. See, when was the last time you wondered at the beginning of the day if there was going to be anything for you to eat at the end of that day? Sometimes we need to put things into a little perspective. So here's this woman. She has nothing She resigned herself to the fact that she and her son would starve to death. And now I want to push pause on this story for a second. And I want to ask a question that grabs me as I read this story. And my question is, why her? Like, why did God choose this person? Because it seems like there could have been so many other options available to God. Like, she's starving to death. Like, why would God say to her, You be generous. If anyone has the right to sit back and say, you know what, times are tough right now. I think I'm just going to sit this one out and surely someone else can come along and take care of this need that you have. There's a part of us that really relates to that when times are tough. Well, I'm having trouble paying my bills. Don't I get a free pass on this generosity thing? I think God chooses this woman to teach us a couple of lessons. 
The first one is that God expects everyone to give something. But you're driving along the highway and you see a car stop. They've had some type of mechanical problem. And what do you do? Do you just keep on driving thinking, well, I don't really know anything about cars. Somebody else will stop and help them. Or do you stop and say, look, I'm sorry. I don't really know much about cars, but I'm going to do what I can to help you out here. It's human nature to just drive by and think, Somebody else will do it. Like somebody who's a mechanic, they'll be on their way home from work. and They'll stop by, and in five minutes, they'll get that car going again. But what happens when everybody else is thinking that somebody else is going to help? Hey, there are many reasons why I love this church, and one of them is because we have a lot of generous people who've given sacrificially over the years. And there are many churches that are constantly running behind on budget, and every week they're up front, they're pounding on the people, give more, give more. And we've been blessed to see an increase every year in our income, other than 2006. We had a tough year there, and we had to address it publicly. And I've had people come up to me and say they like the fact that we're not always talking about money. But once in a while, we have to. In 2011, it wasn't because of a shortage. It was because we were going to renovate this building. So I challenged people to give beyond their regular giving to pay for that. And this complete renovation was paid off in five years' time. But 2017 kind of ended our run of increased giving each year. Is it Haley's Comet that comes around every seven years? Something does. It just seems like every seven years. And so up here, I've got some slides to help us out here. This was our budget last year, 2017. And then our actual is coming on a slide. So we were behind pretty well 19,000 during the year, $400 per week. There's our shortfall. But the good news of it all was we were able to save on expenses, so we actually ended up with $3,000 more in the bank. So this wasn't a big concern to us. We'd had some families move that uh, obviously were helping out in the financial end. But then the start of this year, what we did, we based our budget on the months of September to December of the previous year. And our average giving during that time period was 6300 So we thought, okay, we'll bump that a little by 3%, and this was our budget for this year. It ends up being $300 more per week. And we always fall a little behind in January, February, maybe 600 a week. But our giving is off like 1650 per week. One more slide. So year-to-date, we're behind by that much. So this is more of a concern. We're okay for a while. We're not shutting doors or anything like that. But it's something that we need to be concerned about. And a big concern also is that 20% of the people are giving 80% of that 5,000 per week. So there must be quite a few of us that give very little or nothing at all. And I know there are all kinds of reasons for that, and I know that if that's the group you're in, you could probably very easily give me your justification. But what do we learn from this widow? That God expects us to give something. 
And the other lesson we learn from her is that God can use whatever you give. Like, there's that old excuse that we sometimes use. Like, what could I contribute? Like, I can't contribute very much. And it really isn't that necessary because the offerings are over $300,000 a year. So what I'm giving, it's such a small percentage that I just won't bother at all. But here's what God shows in the Scripture. It's not so much about the amount for him because he owns everything. It's what we do with him, what he has given to us and do it in a sacrificial way. We had a senior woman in our church. She was on a fixed income of $1,100 a month. And I don't know this about anybody else in the church, but she was actually giving $25 a week because she called me every day and told me what was going on in her life. So she gave $25 a week, even on that income. And then in late uh, 2010, early 2011, I started casting the vision for this renovation. And I wasn't even asking for money. And she came up to me after the service, and she said, you know, all I can do is another $25 a month to, to help with this campaign. And it was $275,000 altogether. So at first you might think, $25 a month, that's $300 a year. Over the course of five years, that's $1,500. Like, what's that going to do against $275,000? But it's huge. That's what it is because she gave from what she had. God used the widow's gift, and it fed a starving prophet. Like those of you who gave to, through this church in 2017, this is what you were a part of. Uh, some pretty incredible things. I'm going to have to read it so I don't miss anything. Thirteen people gave their lives to Christ. Our local food bank has been the recipient of giving and funding as well as food items. Power bills were paid, rent was paid, cars were repaired, groceries and gas were provided for people in our church, in our community. We provided money for Bible translations in Papua New Guinea and Thailand. We supported teaching the Bible in Poland. We provided money for outreach and water supply in Mali. We funded an orphanage in Haiti, and we sent eight youth and eight adults on a missions trip to Haiti. A Bible college that prepares students for Christian ministry was supported. Two church plants were funded. A church camp where children and youth find Christ was funded. A $1,000 scholarship was provided for a student to attend Maritime Christian College. See, God takes what we give and uses it in a tremendous way. So why did God choose this woman? She has no material resources. It's the same reason why God chose a shepherd boy to defeat a giant. It's the same reason why he chose a teenage girl to become the mother of his son. It's the same reason why he chose an uneducated fisherman named Peter to preach the first message the day the church started. The reason God chose this widow and that he chooses these people is really simple. It's because he can. He can use them and you and me as well, when we give back to him. So the widow explains that she doesn't have enough for her and her son. And First Kings 17, verse 13, Don't worry, Elijah said to her, 
Go home and cook your food, as you have said. But first, that's the key word, make a small loaf of bread from the flour you have and bring it to me. Then cook something for yourself and your son. So that word first, that before you do something for yourself, first give something to me. That word helps us to understand a key principle about giving in Scripture. And it's called the principle of first fruits. And that's the fact that God wants the first part first. He wants that to be given to him. Sometimes we don't give God the first part of the pie, and we kind of wait till the pie is all gone, and then there's still some crumbs there, and we're thinking, wow, those crumbs still look good. But then we go and we offer the crumbs to God. Here you go, God. But God wants the first piece. Deuteronomy 14, 22. You must set aside a tithe of your crops, one-tenth of all the crops you harvest each year. So the purpose of tithing, which is to give 10% of your income, is to teach you to always put God first in your life. The reason God asks us to give isn't because he needs our money, because if he needed our money, he could just take it like that. But the reason he asks us to give is so that through the aspect of giving, we come closer to him. We need to give. Now, people have been asking, like, what are the options that we have here of how we can give our 10% or our tithe? And, well, we have modern technology now. So one of the easiest ways is just a cash or a check to put in that offering box back by the corner of the sound booth. And then people can even send checks in the mail as well. Email money transfers are an easy way to do it as well. But this is something that you have to concentrate on and make the effort to do it. If you want to set up something on a regular basis, you can do it through pre-authorized debits. And you can do it weekly, you can do it bi-monthly or once a month. And especially if you're on a steady salary, you're paid the same every week, this is something that might be easier for you. So we have these forms out on the counter in the Welcome Center, if that would make it easier for you. And then you see this up on the board every week. We have the ability to give online. We're doing it right now through Tithely, which is going online and giving through there or maybe downloading an app to your phone and giving in that way. But there's an even easier way that we've just discovered, and it's called Text to Give. And it's also through Tithely. And you just... Everybody, put that number in your phone. Like, if you want to give, 514-613-4693. I could, there's a wonderful song about tourism on PEI, and I'm sure I could make one up to that number. Just dial 514-613-4693, something like that. But, but there are all the options. Like, like, we need everybody in the game, and when we end up with more money than we need, more money goes to missions. It's just amazing how we can bless people all over the world in that way. In 1 Kings 17, Elijah makes her this promise. He said, The Lord, the God of Israel, says, That jar of flour will never be empty, and the jug will always have oil in it, until the day the Lord sends rain to the land. So that was the supernatural promise, and we're not going to see that jar keep filling over and over again. 
But it says, look, if you trust God, if you give to him first, then he's going to supply for you. And then 15. So the woman went home and did what Elijah told her to do. And the woman and her son and Elijah had enough food every day. The jar of flour and the jug of oil were never empty, just as the Lord through Elijah had promised. So she trusts and God supernaturally provides. So I want to just very quickly give you three lessons about how God supplies. God supplies just enough. A church in China was experiencing poverty, and they had been cut off because of their faith. And there were some North American churches that wanted to send funding to them, but the, fa- the pastor refused the aid. And this is what he said. The foreign churches would have robbed us of our anchor. It is our financial need that drives us to our knees and forces us to cry out to him. So do you believe that? Here's a pastor saying, oh, we don't need your money. It's better for us to be in need because it keeps us right with God. In Proverbs 30, verse 8, keep me from lying and being dishonest and don't make me either poor or rich. Just give me enough food for every day. If I have too much, I might reject you and say, I don't know the Lord. If I am poor, I might steal and disgrace the name of my God. And then the second lesson is God often supplies through another. He's capable of sending a raven, but he usually sends a person. And we say, wait now, God, does God really supply? Is that true? Then why are there so many hungry people around our world? George Barna does research all the time. And he said that about 8% of evangelical Christians, so that's us, actually give 10% of their income. He said the average Christian ends up giving a quarter of a tithe. And he said if in Canada and the U.S. we all gave a tithe instead of the quarter, there'd be enough food, enough private Christian dollars to provide health care and education to all the poor in the world, and there'd still be an extra 60 to 70 billion left over for evangelism around the world. So the question begins to change. Maybe God has supplied, but we haven't shared. So God will supply after we trust we see it three times in this passage. And I'm just as I'm closing, the team is going to come to the front here. And there are plenty of other examples where we trust in God's supplies. His provision has already been made, and our trust just kind of unlocks his provision. And it's true for money, and it's true for eternal life as well. You look at what John 3.16 says. God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in, so that's whoever puts their trust in him, may not be lost but have eternal life. So when we put our trust in Jesus, then he supplies eternal life. So we want to give you an opportunity to put your trust in Jesus Christ And if you haven't had a chance to do that yet, if you're ready to make that commitment, please talk to me. I want to hear about that decision, and we can talk further about that.